Welcome to Who Watches the Watchmen, a weekly discussion podcast of the HBO series Watchmen. My name is Derek. And I'm Jeff Sang. Today, we're airing the last episode of the year for our podcast, a kind of post-mortem, if you will, for the first season of HBO's Watchmen. And also for this episode, we're joined by a very special guest, our co-host for the second episode of the show, and our good friend, Amir Ture. Hey, so... We haven't had you on the show for a while. I think uh, last time it was because I was busy. You didn't have anything important going there. <laughs> no, nothing important going on. Just, just the birth of my first child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No big deal. No big no. deal. <laughs> Not a big deal at all. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, good to be back. Glad to uh, be rejoining you guys. Yeah, thank you for joining us again. So before we get into like the heavier stuff of the episode, I want to tell you guys that I went to see Star Wars. The Rise of Skywalker over the weekend. <laughs> I saw and it today also. You did. Oh, and wow. now I have a newfound appreciation for the way that Watchmen does their supplemental material. I have um, <laughs> I have a, a greater appreciation of Damon Lindelof. And I it's so it's really bad to say this, but I I used to love JJ Abrams and this movie alone has really it's made yeah. me rethink my love for a teacher. <laughs> wow. um, Amir, Amir hasn't seen it yet, right? Okay, so we're yeah. not going to anything. Oh, I'm so sorry. I don't mean. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't I mean, mean to destroy your hopes and dreams, but <laughs> no, no, no. I, I've I've heard about the reaction already. My expectations are low. I think that I'm going to try and see it ASAP so I can get on on the discussion while while the takes are still piping hot. So yeah. <laughs> hopefully, in the next couple of days here. Did you like the Last Jedi? I like The Last Jedi, I think not as much as Jeff did. Okay, because yeah. I, I love The Last Jedi, and I did not like this one. So I'm, I'm actually I, curious, because I, 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 have, I have some friends that like absolutely did not like The Last Jedi. I'm very curious to talk to them and see what they think about this. I think this really goes back to what I said in our Damon Lindelof prologue episode, where there's this J.J. Abrams school of storytelling. And that J.J. Abrams himself hasn't graduated from that, but Damon Lindelof has, right? Like, he stuck the landing. I want to say he stuck the landing on this show, but he definitely stuck the landing on The Leftovers as well. I know neither of you guys have seen that, but I don't know. This movie was rough. I had a, a pretty big eye roll yeah, but- moment. Uh, I had this, like, physical reaction, and my, my fiance looks over at me, and she just starts laughing. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. All right. I don't want this to become like a Rise of Skywalker podcast, but yeah, you're definitely right. I went to see it with my wife and she hates like CGI stuff, but she's usually okay with Star Wars. But like, even when we go to Marvel movies, she's usually like, this was kind of stupid, but she would never go and turn to me and say like, I'm really bored. And this is what she did during this movie. So I was like, I was surprised. So I wouldn't say I was bored. I was just... At the end of it, I was a little disappointed. <laughs> I was a lot disappointed. But like we, we've gone <laughs> over this before, but I think Watchmen's PDpedia exhibits are pretty much the perfect way to do supplemental material. 
versus mm-hmm. the nonsense they pulled with the Star Wars movie. Like, don't worry, I'm not going to spoil anything. But this was like the absolute worst way to produce tie-ins. And I think with Watchmen, the PDP stuff rarely had critical information necessary to understand the show. And even when it did, it was just introducing it earlier before non-readers of it would find out just a few episodes later, right? It enhanced mm-hmm. the experience. But with Star Wars, it's like, hey, if you want to understand this, you have to play Fortnite. <laughs> if you want this character's emotional arc to make any sort of sense whatsoever, you have to read a comic book. It's pretty awful. Is it going to spoil if you explain the Fortnite thing to me? Because I Fortnite don't understand. The Fortnite thing it. is... All right, it's just the opening crawl. And like, if you've seen the trailer, you know that Emperor Palpatine returns or whatever. And the first thing the, the thing says is that he comes back and he makes a broadcast to, like, I don't know, the remnants of the First Order or, like, the resurgent First Order mm-hmm. saying they have to crush the Rebellion and, like, they have to go after Rey or some shit. But you never hear the broadcast. But if you want to hear the broadcast, you got to play the newest expansion of Fortnite. I don't know how Fortnite oh, works. So, so that's what that, that was. But I don't know. Anyway. Okay. All right. Well. Let's start this podcast by asking our guest, what did you think of the last episode? What did you think about the season finale? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, the season finale. So I think the season finale wrapped things up in a really neat manner, and I'm not entirely sure that that's good. Okay, I partially agree with that statement. I, okay, I think the thing I was most afraid of at the beginning was that we would end up with a number of mysteries that were started in the beginning that were left unsolved at the end and i didn't get that so in that sense uh they avoided the sort of obvious trap that i think is there in the jj abrams uh, school of filmmaking like lost syndrome yeah i would say exactly that's what i was gonna say also is that i i feel like i've heard people talk about the leftovers and there's things definitely unresolved with that there was definitely things left unresolved with lost like there's a lot of questions that never got answered I feel like Watchmen, amongst the three, is probably the one that I think maybe he answers the most questions, or they provide yeah, the, most the most answers to the most up, questions. Yeah, okay. But you thought it was a little too neat and tidy, Amir? Is that what you're saying? Or Yeah, it's weird. It's Maybe it's one of those things where the cure is worse than the disease, but I just, I think, you know, in giving us all the answers to the mysteries, it, it, it ended up feeling like things were wrapped up into a nice, neat package, and it didn't fully fit. You know, I think the best parts of the show were like the weirdness and the imagery and i think tying the story in a bow the way it did kind of forces you to think about the show in a way that doesn't do it much credit i think the show was actually weakest in actually exploring the themes that it sort of opened up the season with and that it never fully got there with those. And that in wrapping up the plot so neatly, it left you too much time to think about the thematic resonance, which ended up not being there. I completely get what you're saying. Also, I think like maybe my vision and maybe Derek's vision is a little clouded on this front because we're doing this podcast every week and then we're going through theories and reading all the articles and unpacking all the Easter eggs when things that we predicted come true or they don't come true, we're too into the woods to to see like 
the forest for the trees, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, you're definitely a little in too deep. And I, okay, speaking of predictions, I will circle back around to saying I did predict that Dr. Manhattan was going to be a person at the beginning of this season. Yes. So I'm going to take credit yes, for that did. right now. Yes, did. I'm going to take a, we, take we a said victory that. lap. <laughs> <laughs> we said that in that, up, in yeah, that yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, we gave I got you my credit. credit. I, got yeah. my, I want to reemphasize that I made the right call. Because <laughs> you said that there was no way that they kept mentioning that he can't take human form and not actually Chekhov's human form, I guess, <laughs> right? Yeah, Chekhov's atomic man. I mean, I think they did a good job of planting that seed a couple episodes in and then switching gears so completely through so many different other storylines that you kind of forget that they did drop that seed. So when it finally sprouts in the end, you're like, oh, yeah, this was really good and it was fair play by them. Mm-hmm. I think that was mm-hmm. fair play. What was not fair play so much was... Okay, so some of the specifics. Ozymandias being Lady True's dad totally works, but I'm not sure the way in which it happened totally makes a ton of sense. Like, I'm not sure if that was fair play. Like, Ozymandias keeps a receptacle of his sperm in his office behind a painting. You could have predicted that he was her dad, but was that the way that you thought it was going to go down? Could you have ever predicted that? I don't know. Is that, like, just cool weirdness, or is it off the wall introducing new plot elements in the last episode i don't know i think it straddles the line between being weird and being like i don't know how you would say it but i think if you think about it he said that he'd never lain with a woman Mm -hmm. but also it kind of makes sense that he would want to preserve his legacy in some way right and i think in that regard it might make a little more sense is that what you're getting at or not even that. I mean, I actually like the character motivation idea that he's like voluntarily celibate or whatever. I thought that was like a nice weird, uh-huh. a nice weird touch. <laughs> he's a false. Yeah, he's a false. <laughs> no, no, deep into the internet terminology we wanted to get, but yeah, he's he's false. <laughs> I actually like that. That's, that's as far as we're going to get with that topic. We're not going any deeper. <laughs> <on that. laughs> yeah, we're not touching that. I, I, I definitely <laughs> like that he was uh, he was false there. I'm not sure that's actually historically accurate, right? Because isn't I mean I, I guess he's a an Ozymandias Ramses the second fanboy, right? But uh-huh. I'm pretty sure Ramses the second had children, and then Alexander was not celibate, as far as I understand it, right? He's also he an Alexander the Great think, yeah. fanboy, and Alexander the Great was definitely not celibate either. So it's just I don't know. If that's a weird like. It's a weird touch, and I like it, but I'm not sure it's actually historically accurate. I think it's just well, I think he just sees it more as a distraction, right? I think he said he mentions that you know or a relationship like that would be a distraction to his cause sure that's how i read it but being a week now removed from this you know the final episode and this season ending i don't think lady true connection doesn't work as well i don't really see a reason why they need to be Related. except for maybe they would just be the fact that's why lady true is so smart is that the implication then i mean i think she still could be a very wise woman that's on par with um, Ozymandias without being his daughter, I don't see the reason or a strong, compelling reason for her to have to be his daughter. Yeah, I think that circles around into just Lindelof's own personal ideas about family and legacy and things like that. I'm not sure it necessarily needed to be here. I kind of agree with you on that. There may be some other unpleasant implications of that too, right? Like the only way this Vietnamese woman could have been smart is because a rich white man is her dad i don't know it's a, it's a little it's a little odd definitely odd as hell and also i feel like the later half of 
the season kind of dropped off from the more complex racial themes and like the themes of white colonialism and stuff because lady true even her namesake is about like a vietnamese revolutionary fighting against encroachment from another country right but then in the end she kind of just evolved into this kind of mustache twirling supervillain wanting to ascend to godhood i understand that there's still a vendetta against dr manhattan but that motivation became less clear in the last two episodes it leaves the narrative of race behind and just becomes one about saving the world right just which in, i in understand to some extent because it is like a comic book show mm-hmm. but also a lot of the things that we tried to predict didn't really come to fruition either because like, yeah we were basing a lot of our, our assumptions on Sticking with the theme of race, right? Right. Like, Derek, you had the theory with, like, the empathy bomb, where mm-hmm. it had something to do with all the TVs that Lady True was giving to all the residents in Tulsa, right? And then mm-hmm. what happened with nostalgia? I thought that was going to be, like, a huge thread that they were going to weaponize it somehow against, like, the white supremacists, and then that never came. I thought that would have been more interesting than them just vaporizing all the 7K members and Cyclops members with lasers right yeah yeah as cathartic as it is to see white supremacists vaporized and i'm definitely all about that um (laughs) (laughs) just to be clear on the record but i think that this is one of those cases in which some of the fan theories that you guys were coming up with are actually better than what they ended up going with if we're going to talk about lady true and the disappointment of that i guess that's another aspect of my in the finale in that i i do think she would turn into a mustache twirling villain and i don't think she was ever given enough background for us to be like this lady's evil like sure she's she's sinister she's a billionaire she's obviously got weird plans she's doing weird stuff but like i'm not convinced that her having dr manhattan's power actually would have been bad but i think that's the point outside of ozymandias saying that she's a megalomaniac and someone who's egotistical as that should never have that kind of power outside of that like what she said she's going to do with the powers her and will say about dr manhattan is largely rings true right like he never really did that much with his powers to make humanity a better place right Mm -hmm. outside of inventing some lithium car batteries and shit but they never convinced us that her having the powers would be an awful thing and then the other point related to that they haven't convinced me that lady true having the powers would be bad and also i'm not sure they've convinced me that angela having the powers would necessarily be good yes like yeah. angela isn't exactly like a moral paragon she's like a she's a hothead she's, right she's, and like she's dude, she's an abusive she's like committing cop. police yeah, she's like, <laughs> yeah police she, brutality she tortured, dude, and it's not like she started torturing people at the beginning of the episode and stopped <laughs> she does it in this last episode <laughs> like yeah she yeah. does like Granted, the guy's yeah, she breaks all that guy's fingers, right? He's... I didn't buy the Lady True heel turn thing at all. I was, but I was disappointed at the way she went out. To play devil's advocate, I think that may be the point they're trying to make, barring how her exit was handled, right, or like how the whole final confrontation went down. Maybe the whole point is that they're trying to make it a little more ambiguous whether Lady True having the powers would be terrible or like whether Angela having the powers would be amazing. So that might play into the ambiguity a little. I feel like that's a level of subtlety that I wish I could afford the show, but I don't know is entirely there. And that's because I think thematically, they haven't been entirely on the ball. I've been asking myself this question for like the last week is, if 
Alan Moore wrote this series, would he have made Lady True actually become the god she wanted to be? And would the message then be that maybe she is good and then that someone of a different race that had altruistic intentions that actually got these powers actually did good with them. Like, I kind of wonder what the story would have been like if we saw the flip side, if she actually did get the powers. I mean, I don't think he would have written a story anything like this, but I think if he did, and you're at this point just asking, would he give her the powers or not? I think obviously yes, right? Because he lets Ozymandias mm-hmm. complete his plan. In fact, Ozymandias completes his plan and then explains it afterwards. He doesn't tell people beforehand what he's planning to do a million times before he's done it. Yeah, right. right. I mean, so I think that you know it would have been more true to the comics if she had gotten the powers. Not that anything in the show is true to the comics, really, thematically. Moore's not afraid to show superheroes being bad people, but he actually shows it, right? Like we see Dr. Manhattan's complete like disconnection from humanity and callousness towards human life and inability to really use his powers in any responsible or humane way. And I think if Lady True was in the Watchmen comic, we'd have a clearer idea of what we thought about her. As opposed to in the show where I, th- I think they're trying to sell you on the idea of her being a villain, but they never actually put in the work to make that the case. That's fair. Yeah, I wonder if the show would have benefited from an episode where we got more of a backstory for Lady True. But then also I realized that would maybe humanize her in a way that maybe the show was trying to avoid. Ozymandias, you get his full backstory in the comic and he's not exactly humanized. Like it's a very like, sort of cut out of a guy but you understand his motivations and it's important Mm -hmm. there's the whole black freighters side story which is like a big hint in the direction that maybe ozymandias in the end does not succeed right so right it's a parallel or i don't know maybe lady true's plot could have just been more evil he seems less evil than ozymandias's plan and he yeah he killed three million people yeah like what All, all lady true wants to do is kill dr manhattan the one person who turned the tide of the war that destroyed her like home country right and that's one Mm -hmm. person one superpowered being right i understand where you're coming from let's talk about something else for a moment so like amir as a black man in america what did you think about how the show handled the themes of race i think representation wise and as far as opening people's eyes it did a very good job it introduced a lot of people to the uh tulsa black wall street massacre it portrayed a bisexual black man as a superhero in like early 20th century which i I don't know if we've ever seen that before right our main protagonist is a black woman it's very good on that front thematically i don't think it has anything to say about race particularly, and I also don't think it understood what Alan Moore was saying about race. Okay, yeah, that's that's fair. I think we talked about this offline a little bit, too, right? Yeah. Where outside of, oh, racism is bad, it doesn't really have that much to say yeah i mean there's, yeah there's I, I really don't think there's a lot there it just it, it brings things up and then it doesn't really go anywhere with them and i think here's one of those things where knowing too much can actually ruin things for you i didn't listen to the official podcast but and this is going to get into the meta criticism too but from some of the critics who i've 
listened to their takes and they've listened to the official podcast with Lindelof. Um, and apparently the interpretation is that in the end of this episode, Will tells Angela that can't heal under a mask and you've got to take your mask off in order to heal and everything like that. And yeah, he says, uh, wounds need air. Wounds that's what he need says. Air, right? <laughs> exactly. And I don't know. I think the interpretation there, you know, you got to go a couple steps and kind of listen to the Lindelof podcast. But the idea behind that is that, you know, black people's anger is like this mask they need to take off in order to be able to, I don't know, allow the wounds of injustice to heal or something. It's all very kind of woolly headed and backwards from what I understood. And that's sort of my take on somebody else's take on Lindelof's take. But even Keen has the line where they feel punished, right, for something that their ancestors did. And I listened to the official podcast. I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, yeah, he does say something to the effect that kind of interpretation of that line could be read as as bad as the sound, like, get over it, right? Like, that's the ultimate, like, worst interpretation of maybe that scene. I think Lindelof is probably like a pretty liberal guy. So I don't think his idea yeah. is get over it. But I mean, I think I, th- no, I think, yeah. I think you're right in that. I think it boils down to kind of the same thing in the end, right? Like, you know, let go of your anger and get over it are just two different ways of saying the same thing. Because it's just how people interpret it, right? I don't think that's his intention. I don't think that was ever his intention. But yeah, someone will take it like that. Yeah. Overall, I guess disappointing that they drop all these interesting things with uh, the way black people are treated in America versus in Germany and the, the Tulsa Wall Street Massacre and all these interesting things they bring up that they never – pay off and then my other criticism oh boy i actually completely forgot about this so was the implication that cyclops was behind the wall street massacre i don't know if i ever got that where where did you get that implication from what or is it just that cyclops comes around afterwards i think cyclops is established after the kkk movement i think the cyclops movement is either like concurrent or like Slightly before Will's stint as a cop in New York. Got it. Okay, so it's much later. Okay. I, I wanted to bring this up. Going back to interpretations, I, I don't interpret it like this, but I could definitely see how someone might interpret the finale as this very intelligent woman of Asian descent is not given the opportunity to enact her plan. And instead left out of the mix, right? She she has this altruistic plan to use this power to save the world, but she isn't given that opportunity because a white man stops her. I've kind of thought about it the last week and I know this is not their intention, but like I definitely fear that that could have been interpreted like that. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a fair interpretation yeah, then, because that is eventually what happens. You also have like this dangerous stereotype where, you know, like the dragon lady or whatever, you know, like this mysterious mm-hmm. woman who has like hidden agendas and she's enacting like plans of revenge and, and things like that. But I don't know. That's definitely, definitely not the intention. Yeah. No, it isn't. That's not, and I don't read it like that. I just know that you may be interpreted that way. That's yeah. really up to the, the, you know, the individual to do that. All right. It sounds like we're, dumping a lot on on the show okay yeah i I wanted to come back to it and say that i've been very critical this episode but it's not like i hated the show at all i'm just venting a lot of possible criticism it's not like i 
didn't enjoy the show. I was thoroughly entertained the whole time. Uh, there's a lot of cool world building. The acting is great. There's a lot of really cool shots. There's some interesting yeah. homages to the comic. They do a good job of like Dr. Manhattan's weird being unstuck in time and seeing all times at once and his manner of speaking. They nail that. There's a lot of things that they do nail. So yeah, it's it's not yeah. as if we're we're just completely dumping on the show. Yeah, there's just a, a lot to be critical about while still being able to enjoy it. Like if you're talking about race a little more, you could say that the show is confused as the message that it wants to tell. But on the other hand, you could also say that if you want to say it's more than oh racism is bad, right? Then like you could also say it's about like the persistence of racism and like how pervasive it is, and no matter where you are or like what reality you're in it's gonna be a thing that's present right because you have this whole entire alternate timeline where redford becomes president and he's this ultra liberal leader for for the united states and he enacts the redfordations the reparations but like you still have this pent-up resentment and like these racist conspiracies and things like that too right so I, i guess you could take it that way too i mean i'm just spitballing here yeah i mean i did interpret a little bit like at the end that even though reparations happen it didn't make the world better in a sense right Right. the world is still very much in parallel to ours yeah all right racism still exists you know there's people out there that are still uh ignorant or insensitive to the subject matter that just because this world is different and maybe certain situations are better, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that everything is fixed. Right. To be clear, the red Redfordations, as I understood them anyway, are limited to people who can prove they were victims of or the descendants of victims of a specific number of instances of racial discrimination or violence. So it's not as if reparations were passed wholesale across the country, right? No. Right. Know. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. But I do uh, agree that there is uh, definitely a, a backlash against them that we see in the uh, in the show. Yeah, because I think in the official podcast, he does mention it kind of extends beyond just victims of the Tulsa massacre of 1921. Like, Damon Lindell mentions also, like, internment camps, right? Japanese internment camps, the Trail of Tears, right? So, like, it's instances like those that I think are all kind of grouped into that. But I think we're just seeing a very specific sector. All right, talking a little bit more about the positives. I mean, were there any other episodes that you found were effective during this season? Man, I mean, I haven't been on since episode two, I guess. So really, like, mm-hmm, right. I thought the season was kind of marching from strength to strength, episode after episode. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I I enjoyed the Looking Glass episode. I really enjoyed the Under the Hood Will episode. Nostalgia the, trip. Yeah, the Nostalgia Trip yeah. episode. I really enjoyed that. I mean, it's been a fun ride the whole way through. You know, there's a lot of criticisms, and criticisms, I think, in a way, are more fun to make. But so, there's a lot that's good here, and I wouldn't discourage anyone from watching it if they were a fan of uh, a fan of Watchmen. I mean, I think you have to watch it knowing that it's not by Alan Moore. It's not going to really be in any way a thematic continuation of his work. In some ways, it's going to be the opposite of that. But yeah, you're always going to have like those hardliners where like Watchmen is untouchable and anything not by Alan Moore, we shouldn't watch, which I think is a closed minded approach to things like even if alan moore didn't approve of 
this adaptation, which he never approves of any of his adaptations, right? Mm-hmm. But I thought this was largely worth it, with or without the approval of the original author, right? The season's over now. I can say like I can wholeheartedly recommend this, right, to somebody oh, that yeah, maybe 100%. isn't watching it or hasn't watched it yet, and tell them like definitely watch this show and definitely look up the 1921 Tulsa Massacre. And definitely look up, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates' article on case reparations. Like, if anything, what this show has given me is a great history lesson. Learning things that I wasn't privy to before this uh, season. And I'm grateful for it in that Yeah, like like Amir said, like it opens people's eyes. And that's better than most comic book adaptations even strive for, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's definitely the way in which it's been most effective. I mean, I think ironically the show kind of recapitulates some of the same things that alan moore was criticizing you know 30 years ago you know i mean his whole the main thrust of his criticism of superheroes is that is that they would end up being largely right-wing fascists who would prop up nixon for 40 years and who would inevitably sort of be like this conservative force not for good but for ill generally and we're seeing the same thing here in Watchmen. Angela's a cop. She abuses her power. The cops are literally superheroes. And yeah, this is like a, I guess it's part of a white supremacist plot or whatever to make, to put masks on the cops so that the white supremacists can infiltrate. But it's doing the same thing that he was criticizing originally. It's so, so it's sort of interesting. They just made her black. Yeah, she fits in like the Alan Moore mold of, Right, a character within that world. Right, but of a character that he would be criticizing or satirizing. Right, right. no, yeah. exactly. Yeah, like, right, right. <laughs> yeah, but she's she's like an archetypal of somebody who he would be like against. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's just it's interesting. I mean, it is a softer approach because if you're comparing someone like the comedian to Angela, it's night and day. Where the approach to Angela is like, yes, she is militant with her police brutality and stuff, but She's not like a rapist like the comedian is, right? So it's a a more softball approach. But you're definitely right. It's the type of character that Moore was trying to take down a peg in in Watchmen in the graphic novel. And it definitely applies to Angela as well. But this is 2019. And you have to step around the fact that, I mean, your character is a African-American female and you can't criticizes maybe as hard as alan moore would have maybe wanted to in in his comic version of it right can you expand on that one i do feel like in our kind of day and age we have to be very light-footed around the subject of race still where it's easier to criticize a white male in a show but with angela's character it's it's a little harder to maybe criticize her character because of where we are with like me too and 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 oscar's so white kind of era right right is that am i am i I making sense i think i think i get what you're saying and i think i'm going to run with that maybe and take it a different direction so it sounds to me like maybe it's difficult in this day and age to portray people of certain minority groups as outright villainous because then you feel like the backlash you might get is that you're portraying them one dimensionally or they're only acting as the villain or Mm mm-hmm or you're not allowed to criticize them in certain ways because of their minority status or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I think I would kind of run maybe in a different direction with that. I think that maybe part of the problem 
I mean, it's not like people like Angela don't exist in the real world, or the people like Will don't exist in the real world, but there was a reason that there aren't black heroes in Watchmen, right? Like, yeah, as cool as the nostalgia episode was, we understand that part of the critique of superheroes is also that it's a racist is is that is that it's largely a racist enterprise mm-hmm. and that these sorts of people in the real world would probably be racist would probably be white would probably you know so yeah the poignant line from captain metropolis i think he says to will like i love your skin but you still got to wear that white makeup because no, people are not going to accept you and then also back to the point when young angela like pulls the sister knight cassette you know she says that she loved it because it looked like her right we, we we've talked about these kind of issues of comics kind of being historically more white put it plain and simple also like i want to mention that i think the next step of representation whether it's african-americans or asians is to be able to portray characters in multifaceted ways whether it be positive or negative without having this like liberal pedestal you put characters of a certain race on, right? And like you can portray characters realistically without the backlash of being perceived as racist or anything like that, right? Yeah, that's where I would love, you know, that's yeah, where yeah. I'd love to get to at some point, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we've talked about this before, Jeff. Like, I love to get to a point where we're not doing podcasts where like we're praising you know asian american representation right where yeah where we don't need to where we don't need to right like damn right we're the freaking villains like we're the badass villains of this of this (laughs) this story right i kind of wish they had done that if lady true had been a vietnamese nationalist who was out to destroy america because of its crimes against her nation that would have whipped so much ass (laughs) yeah if they totally leaned into that yeah right like make mm-hmm. something of that specific history and make it make sense that like angela's literally sleeping with uh, the atom bomb that destroyed her nation right and angela's parents were killed by vietnamese nationalists and then like it would have been an interesting angle it would have done more with the race themes and the nationalism and colonialism themes for a moment there i thought this was where they were going with that yeah they never make anything Uh, of it it ends up being a generic super villain plot and it almost robs it because then you go oh she you know yeah well i guess either way it's kind of tough to even see her as evil because even if they'd done that original plot line you still would have had a lot of sympathy for her i mean yeah she's like justified right yeah honestly and i mean uh, i don't know if you guys have seen this but this is from black panther there a lot there were a lot of people who were like hey killmonger was right and i i I think uh yeah i think i'm a lady true was right i mean (laughs) yeah that's part of what makes killmonger such a great villain right right you you also get that with ozymandias when you read the comic i i never necessarily interpreted that he was entirely wrong oh yeah absolutely. yeah but he's a white man fuck him (laughs) (laughs) parody parody Uh, (laughs) i think more takes seriously the moral awfulness of sacrificing millions of lives to save billions if that is even what ozymandias is doing and if he does even do so successfully which i think is intentionally somewhat ambiguous in the comics whereas lady true and Killmonger aren't even really given a chance to 
do that, and they're also it's also not clear that the sacrifices is great, right? They have to go to goofy lengths to make Killmonger and Lady True villainous, whereas like the villainy of Ozymandias is clear on its face, even if it's not absolute, right? So they have to go, oh yeah, Lady True, she couldn't be trusted with power because she wanted it, and you know, oh Killmonger, he couldn't. Uh, be trusted to, I don't know, lead Wakanda and lead black liberation across the globe because he, you know, randomly killed his girlfriend and started burning herbs for no reason, right? Like, <laughs> they have to kind of... Yeah, but like Ozymandias, he he already killed three million people. Right, right? yeah, you don't have to he, make him... He enacted more, his plan. Yes, you don't have to make him any more of a villain than he already is because he already is a villain, whereas like, yeah. whereas like Lady True and Killmonger, because their causes are inherently sympathetic, you have to make them do something goofy or not provided a justification for why they're evil. Whereas Ozymandias, regardless of where you come down on him, it's clear that he is doing something that people can see as evil. Killmonger, to me, like, he is a sympathetic villain, but at the same time, I mean, near the end of that, you know, that third act, he was very much trying to arm people to start wars, right? Or or start incidents of violence. But Lady True is, ne- like you said, never really given the opportunity to show why, why she's evil. Because everything she says she wants to do with the power is not necessarily evil not at all yeah she's never given that opportunity for us to understand if she's evil or not versus killmonger i do think that he doesn't walk that fine of a line they do get a chance to show you that he does have evil intentions or whatever but even though i think the evil Mm -hmm. evil intentions seem a little bit like oh shit we accidentally made this guy too sympathetic like let's make him a villain right no yeah and that's what makes him a great Uh, yeah it seems like at the last minute they're like oh shit this guy's not villainous enough. Let's quick. Let's make him do something villainous. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you guys this question about Ozymandias. So this is getting a little away from discussion of race, but did you guys feel that in the end it paid off? Like to you know have this separate side story with Ozymandias that finally gets intertwined in, with our kind of main storyline? Did, did you guys feel that it paid off in the end? I think it did mm-hmm. there were definitely certain points where i was getting a little fatigued by it but i think in the end all those reveals were about like mr phillips and crookshanks it was all pretty interesting to me so i thought the whole uh segue with ozymandias across all nine episodes was pretty worth it in the end i think for me it was really great up until the point where he got off europa and I think you mean like in the final episode, basically, like even the stuff before he gets off of Europa, right? Like, the, like you're talking about the reveal that the game warden is just another Mr. Phillips that he wrote this play, right? That he was just trying to entertain himself for eight years so he doesn't go crazy. Like, all that worked for me. Yeah, but I, I think, thought that worked for me too. But the second you know he gets back to Earth and his big plan is to drop a bunch of frozen squid, that's where it lost me and like it didn't have that oomph that i needed he's here for a reason and i guess it's just so that he can drop a bunch of baby frozen squid (laughs) i I, I think i mean he's there to fulfill the plot function of defeating lady true but he's also there to be her dad and to tie uh, her story together but i think it's all very accelerated so that we spend like eight episodes with him on europa and in flashbacks and then in the space of one episode yeah like half an episode yeah he's rescued and comes back to earth he's thawed out recovers turns against lady true and defeats her all in like 30 minutes or something it's very decompressed 
I'll agree and disagree with you guys in that I don't think it was worth it in the sense that you didn't need to have eight or nine episodes of him hanging out on Europa in order to get to where you were plot-wise. You could have kind of just oh, I agree. started. I agree you could have just kind of started in episode nine almost. But I'm glad we saw it because I thought it was all so weird and fun to watch. I mean, Jeremy Irons was great, that I'm really glad we had it, even if it wasn't strictly plot necessary. I think it added a lot to the show in terms of my enjoyment. The weird babies in the water, and the gay warden, and the, all the weird clones, and the... And, and yeah. Right. If uh, if you take it on like a negative spin, I guess you could say that it yanked your chain for eight episodes. But I enjoyed it, right? Like you said. Yeah. I did too. It was interesting the way they they did that. Yeah. One thing I want to say is that for Lady True, for like the smartest woman in the world, she's kind of an idiot for rescuing her father, right? Well, she does all the villain tropes. She thinks she's one, so like, oh, I'm just going to bring my father to shove it in his face, and I'm going to tell everybody my she's plan. Like the smartest man in the world yeah. and did all this other shit with the fake squid incursion and stuff, so... You got to know that he might have something up his sleeve. So that's like hubris at the ultimate level. Oh, right? yeah. And she thinks she's won before she actually won. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's just it sucks because that's one of the tropes that Watchmen completely skewers. Subverts. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then she just falls right back into one. And it's kind of lazy. It's like, come on, guys. Like, you didn't read the comic? Like, how are you having her do all the things that Ozymandias avoided? Yeah. That part kind of... Kind of stank. Yeah. Because she didn't have a stable father figure in her life. <laughs> to teach her proper villainy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe let's do like a 180 and talk about how the show itself was actually received, right? All right, let's play a little game. What do you think the viewership numbers of this show? Ooh. Did you guys look I this think, up? Before? I think I have a rough idea. I think I have a rough idea. I've, I've heard numbers here and there, but I don't actually remember those numbers. Is it like something like. 9 million, 10 million? So I'm going to say 700 to like 900,000 live, and then maybe 10 times that amount, 7 or 8 million overall. Per episode? Per episode, yeah. That is very, very accurate. Nice. I think total (laughs) per episode, it averaged 7 million. That includes live and on demand and streaming. And I think HBO quantified it as a hit. I mean, I feel like they would call anything they have a hit. The reports I saw were it was the biggest premiere since Westworld, right? I think Westworld was their last biggest premiere. And I mean, it had good numbers for what it was. Right. Have you done any comparisons to like things like Westworld or, or Game of Thrones? I've compared to Game of Thrones. I haven't compared to Westworld. Let's go to the pilot of Game of Thrones. What do you think the viewership of that was? Five billion. Five million? What about you, Amir? What do you think? I'm gonna go less. Let's say two. It's two and a half. Oh, whoa! Yeah. <laughs> um, Amir, you're good at this. I'm gonna stop ma- guessing. Also, taking into account, this was 2011. Right. This is back at the beginning before without like, streaming. Yeah. Right. This is before HBO Go. Yeah. So this is pretty interesting. What did Game of Thrones end up at? Ten million per episode live? More? Yeah, it was like twelve million plus. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, so here's the thing. I don't know if I think that if 12 million people were watching every Game of Thrones episode, that 7 million watching Watchmen. Do those numbers make sense to you? 
that's just nobody's talking about Watchmen. I mean, I liked it, but like, it's not like you could go into work every day after a Game of Thrones episode, and everybody, everybody watched it. Right? It seems yeah. a little off. It's off by an order of magnitude. There's, there's no way. I had so many coworkers. Like, we we had a Game of Thrones pool. Yeah, uh, last season, right? Where we played like a death pool, and like there was plenty of coworkers who watched Game of Thrones, and we all played together. I don't know if I had any coworkers watch. Watchmen. So, like for me, I have a couple of friends who watch it, and then but they're very casual viewers, and then they're utterly confused by the show. They have zero idea what's going on. I'm like, listen to our podcast, mm. you know. But <laughs> 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 yeah, another thing is, I'm seriously curious as to how a non-comic reader perceived the show. I have to imagine it's so weird for them. Dude, there's no um, way you could understand it. I think they say that you could understand it, but nah, there's no way. There's no I think way. you could understand it, but like you, you'd be missing so much of the nuance and the callbacks and all that stuff that it would be largely a different show. And especially if you're just watching the show and not reading the Pedopedia and digging into it and doing online right. research and thinking about theories. Like if you just flick on Watchmen and then flick it off when it's done. And you haven't had any other exposure to Watchmen, haven't read the comics, haven't seen the Zack Snyder movie. Right. I, I can't possibly see. Yeah, I think it'd be very difficult. I mean, I did have one friend give up on the show, like I think three or four episodes in, which is fine. Like, not everything is everyone's cup of tea, right? No, it feels like a difficult watch. I mean, I think it would be a difficult watch. My fiance's never read the comic, and Jeff, I think your wife's never read the comic, or has she? She hasn't now. So, I mean, what did what did she think? Um, or were you kind of helping explain things? I I had to explain like pretty much a lot of the backstories and stuff like that, and even then, she was a little confused. Right? She definitely did not get the same level of enjoyment that I did out of the show. I just think it's interesting. I do have some friends that have never read the comics and they followed along pretty well but occasionally they would have to ask me something yeah or i would i would have to clarify something for them so this begs the question then do you find it necessary to read the comics then i know damon lindelof and a bunch of the writers say that you don't have to read the comics you don't have to yeah enjoy the series but i think it increases your enjoyment exponentially when you've read the source material i think but then for us to talk about our people views, if people are actually confused, then I feel like it's more necessary to read it. Then. Yeah. Even Game of Thrones isn't like that, where like you have to read the books. Because, well, I mean, because Game of Thrones is a straight adaptation. It's not a sequel to George R.R. R. Martin's books, right? But this is actually a direct sequel to Alan Moore's graphic novel. So I feel like Game of Thrones had a different issue. Even for a show that was adapting a book there was a lot of information i remember having conversations with friends that totally forgot things about game of thrones oh yeah and, i mean that for sure you know i mean i feel like at least this season of Watchmen tried to remind you of things or bring things up multiple times so that you completely understood it and hopefully weren't confused right versus where sometimes game of thrones was like here's this one character that we showed you once like three seasons ago or like two seasons ago and hope you remember them. 
right? Right. And oh, just by the way, we changed the actor too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They did that a lot. They did that a lot. I yeah. think uh, what's his face? The the mountain had like three or four different actors play. Yeah. Yeah, like I think one of the kids, right? Or a couple of the Lannister kids. Yeah, the Lannister they, they got kid. replaced. Overall, I mean, I feel like critics have been pretty positive with the show. I yeah, think. so this is the next thing I want to talk about. The divide between the critics' score on Rotten Tomatoes and the audience score is massive. Yeah, so have you guys looked at the Rotten Tomatoes? No, let's recently. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have not at all, I don't think. Okay, yeah. uh, critics' score... Percentage wise, what do you think? Yeah, ninety three. Ninety. Okay, what about you? 90? ninety? Ninety. Ninety six. Whoa! Oh, okay. All right. Ninety six percent out of a hundred and one critic ratings. Wow. Uh, audience okay. score. Fifty five. Uh, thirty seven. Thirty seven. Derek is. <laughs> Derek is swinging wow. for the fences here. Fifty two. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Nice. I was going extreme because you you made it sound like it was like. Well, Price is Right rules, you know, technically I was over, so. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to ask you guys something. When you're trying to determine whether or not you're going to watch like a show or a movie, do you trust the critic score or do you trust the audience score? I know I've talked to Amir about this a lot offline, but I want to know from both of you guys, what what do you guys trust? You know, usually I'm a critics guy, but there are some times where I go, eh, screw it. I think I'm the target audience for this, so I'm more like the audience score than the critic score. I'll give you an example. I just started watching The Witcher, and it's like a fantasy TV show on Netflix based on a video game. And so... Well, it's based on books, but... Well, yes. Based <laughs> on books, which were turned into a popular series of video right. games. That is correct. Yeah. So I've read a couple of the books, played the video games a little bit here and there, but as like a kind of a sword and sorcery fantasy fan, The Witcher's kind of up my alley. So even though the critics have kind of trashed it, I was like, eh, well, I don't know. I think it's worth giving it a shot because I think it's something I might like anyway. But generally, if I have no idea about something, I'll definitely roll with the critics score. Yeah. I have a differing opinion. Okay. Oh, I'm curious. For me, it's not critics versus audience. It's individual versus an aggregate, if that makes sense. Okay. Uh, Elaborate a little bit. I don't look at critics score, right? I don't look at Rotten Tomatoes audience score. I'd rather follow critics that I like and read what they have to say. That's a very, very good answer, I think. Yeah. Like, you know, I like Jeff's outlook on things, and I don't always agree with you, Jeff, right? And clearly we've had differing opinions on this podcast, but I still respect what you have to say, and I want to read what you have to say. Right. And I have friends that are not critics that I... I always ask them after I watch a movie or after watching a show, I want to know what they think because I respect what they think. And we have similar ideas or similar thoughts. And I love talking to people and bouncing, you know, thoughts and ideas off each other. Right. But I hate the idea, just someone looking at a score and thinking that, Oh, a hundred critics said that. So that means 96% of those hundred critics, you know, think this way. Like they all think this one way. And that's not necessarily true. Even Someone who thinks overly positive about a show, like us, like we're doing in this podcast right now, be critical. Right. We pointed out a lot of the negatives that we felt, but I hope at the end of this episode, people know that we still really love this show, right? Yeah. And that we, we would recommend this show to anybody. I think the root of the problem is that Rotten Tomatoes is 
largely misunderstood. Oh yeah. If you realize that it's a tool that you use to gauge the percentage of people that liked it versus didn't like it, then I think you're using it correctly. If you equate the percentage that Rotten Tomato gives as like a grade, then you fundamentally misunderstand how Rotten Tomatoes works, right? Mm-hmm. If a thousand critics gave something like a B minus, that would have a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's an A plus show or an A plus movie, but I typically trust the critic score. But I'm also in the same boat as Amir, where I take it as a case by case basis um Mm -hmm. it's something that looks like it's going to be like a guilty pleasure or something that's trashy that like i'm in the mood for you know i'm not going to really listen to the critics but i think i implicitly trust the critic score a lot more when it comes to rotten tomatoes i i do too because at least a critic to me i I feel like is someone that writes about movies and they see a lot more than i ever will so they they can compare apples to apples a larger basket of apples versus like Sometimes I talk to my friends and like they've seen two movies in a year and they're they're comparing it to like, you know, what are they comparing it to? Or they think this is a great movie where I'm just like, I don't think this is a great movie at right. all. And like, can I trust your opinion? Like, <laughs> and I think yeah. the disparity between critic score and audience score is only like a recent phenomenon that's come out with Gamergate and Comicsgate and like this toxic fandom mentality that... I think is really adding to this disparity, right? Me and my brother had a very heated argument like a couple weeks ago in a restaurant about this very same issue of like critics versus audience score. Why is your brother a right-wing troll? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he he thinks sometimes critics, nicest way to put it because he's just a critic, uh, <laughs> that sometimes it, it's a little bougie right or they don't understand him as a he he sees himself as just like a normal guy right and not to say that you're not normal jeff right that sometimes it could be a little highbrow right and that he'd rather trust people that he feels that are more on his level i guess right i'm the first to admit that critics can be a little pretentious and there is like critic hive mind where if a lot of people are dumping on something it automatically pushes you to dump on it as well. And you don't want to cut against that grain. But like, on the other hand, I know that like gatekeeping normally carries like a negative connotation, but the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes has none of it, which I think is like a huge problem, right? Because if you're talking about the critic score, even the worst of the worst of the worst critics, you're talking about like, I don't even care. I'm just going to name people <laughs> like Armand White or Rex Reed or like Grace Randolph. <laughs> even they have to justify their opinions with at least a half formed written analysis. But with like the audience score, come on. All it takes is like a very vocal minority of like bad faith to like bomb the review score. And all they have to do is like leave a review that says trash F and that's it. Right. Like you don't have to say anything else to give something a bad review right? You don't have to like write anything out. You don't have to put any thought into it. And that's where yeah. I think the problem comes from. Let you know our guest next week is Armin. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Armin White. Oh, man. So you got I, dude, me. I've listened to that guy's podcast. I cannot. No, I mean. I don't even just, know he's been on podcasts. Yeah, he's he's been on some podcasts and it's 
I'll I, listen to I, I, res- <laughs> I respect what he says. It's just sometimes it's a little hard to, to hear. That, that's besides the point. What about you, Amir? What do you, what do you think? Man, you, guys, you guys brought up so much good stuff. So I, yeah, I agree with you, Jeff, that I think the disparity between the audience and the critic score is new and is largely a result of an accelerating cultural between the right and the left or between, uh, you know, so-called SJWs and quote-unquote reactionaries. I will say, I think that there is a widespread animus against what people see as social justice warrior, school marming, pushing liberal values or whatever. And I think you'd be surprised at the people who express these kind of anti-SJW views. Mm. In real life, people, I know, colleagues, friends, whatever, they go, oh my god, the film's trying to force their values and just go, huh, that's weird. I didn't realize you would have felt that way. So I do think that, in a way, the trolls are speaking for a real segment of humanity, even if the trolls themselves are just, like, trolling or they're, or they're right, just right, right. no-life losers who are just review-buying, you know, 0% F. But I do think that there's an underlying sentiment that a lot of normal people could agree with. And then I guess the flip side of it is I think that not only do audiences feel like, you know, maybe we're getting these liberal values pushed on us, but I think there's kind of in a way an opposite trend as well, where maybe critics are intentionally pushing a certain dogma or a certain line, and maybe that's something that people are reacting to as well. Mm-hmm. So maybe critics are too homogenous and in a way that doesn't really reflect the views and thought of uh, the general populace. Right, like the fabric of the demographic. Which I think is probably okay, right? Like, critics are necessarily more about the topic, more experienced, uh, better equipped to analyze. So their opinions should differ from what the average idiot thinks, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think it's totally okay for I don't know, I'll bring it back to something I, I was just watching, The Witcher, to have like a 50% critic score and an 80% audience score. That's totally cool. That means mm-hmm. that critics didn't like it. It's got a lot of flaws. Judged, you know, objectively as a, as a piece of art, maybe it's not that great. But if you're someone who's into it, if you're in that self-selected portion of the audience who was going to see something like this anyway, it's probably pretty good for you. Yeah. I think that's okay and that's healthy. Yeah. But I do think that, A, critics are too homogenous in their sort of, political artistic views and b maybe trolls really are responding to something real that a lot of people are seeing are feeling i wanted to ask you guys this sometimes i feel you know a critic's job is partially to maybe provide insight but also if someone maybe is on the fence to watch a movie or a tv show a critic can be a great person to be kind of a soundboard for why or why not you should you know spend your money to watch this thing Mm -hmm. but then i also struggle lately with the idea that let's go to the the rise of skywalker right that i didn't watch it like opening weekend i mean i watched not i just watched it today so it's only like monday which Mm -hmm. is like not that far removed from the weekend but you know i already had people asking me like oh have you watched it it doesn't sound to be like that great even before they've seen it they take that Rotten Tomato score and then they, they project it onto themselves but or try to project it onto me. I hate that. I hate someone trying to influence the story before I've had a chance to make up my own mind. Do you ever kind of get that or do you ever feel that when you see like an aggregate score like Rotten Tomatoes? Where someone's like, 
oh, I heard it's terrible. Like, yes, yeah, like know. someone, yeah, like basically, you know, a lot of my friends are. The first question was, "Have you seen Rise Skywalker yet?" And I heard it's not that great. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't bother me as much, but it's definitely something that happens, right? Mm-hmm. A critic score is more visible than ever. Just go online, and you can see what other people are saying about it. And in the case of Rise of Skywalker, like I, I agree with most of the critics. I think I did not enjoy it. <laughs> Just watched it today, so I haven't had a chance to deep dive into critics' reviews yet. I've seen the critics' scores, but. Now I want to go like go and actually read things that critics have said, but mm-hmm. I mean I have my opinions and yeah I, I didn't. I think Rise of Skywalker is like a whole different problem in that it sets like a dangerous precedent where it's telling the toxic fandom and all these trolls that they have a voice and that Disney is listening. I think that's the problem there. I mean this is not Watchmen related, but on the other hand it kind of is right because. There's this huge disparity between the Watchmen critic score and the audience score, where you have a more slanted audience score where it's like, oh, it's woke liberal propaganda, which I don't understand this one as much as like some other review bombs, because what, that racism is bad and like white supremacists get what they deserve? Like, that's the hill you're going to die on? For, for these people? Jeff, it's hard to be a white male in this world. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very nice, Senator Keener. Yeah. Yeah, it's especially doubly weird because it seems like it's people who didn't even understand the Watchmen comic. Like, Alan Moore is not right-wing at all. He is super yeah. left. So, like, if you don't get that he's against racism and against fascism and against conservatism, you don't get Alan Moore. I mean, he very recently posted on twitter or some, or facebook or something like that or instagram one of these social media sites that he was going to vote labor in the uk election which just passed right i saw that as a side note labor got labor got absolutely trounced yeah they got destroyed but he did say that he was going to for the first time in i don't know decades actually cast a vote because he felt it was so important so i mean yeah i i, I mean i think that not only is it a weird hill to die on but it's people who clearly didn't even ever understand the original work that was, to me, the most confusing thing. I remember feeling when I saw the initial thoughts or reviews of Watchmen and how it was too overly political political or, or uh, about um, race, where I'm like, that's exactly what the comic was. Yeah, I hate to break it to you, but the original Watchmen was political. <laughs> so, yeah. But I want to say, like, I saw someone say, Great, another show where the white supremacists are the bad guys. Like, what the fuck are you saying? <laughs> like, what? What's the flip side of that arc? What are you talking about? Like, oh I don't. Okay, I understand to some extent. I don't agree, but I understand the review bombing for like something like Captain Marvel, where the actress Brie Larson came. Like, we don't need more white men. So, like, obviously, you can see that some. Um, white guys are going to take umbrage in, in that, right? But, like, for something like this, I don't understand it at all. The source material is political. You know the views of Alan Moore that he leans really far left, too, right? And then it's a completely different story than some of these other review bombing scenarios that yeah. we've seen. Yeah, it's weird. I sort of wonder what the flip side of this is and has there ever been a situation in which the critics are conservative than the fans i mean i don't know has, has hollywood and criticism always sort of been on the liberal side i don't know maybe that's that's a that's sort of a broader 
historical history of art history of film question. I think that's just Hollywood itself being more liberal than conservative, I guess, that it's always that one way instead of another. So yeah, I don't think we've ever seen it really in the other direction. Yeah, I think that's probably true. If you want to talk about critic and audience disparity, I think before all this troll nonsense, there are like different reasons for that, right? If you had like a big disparity, it's like the movie is so esoteric that no one understands it. Or the movie was advertised in a way that sold the movie completely wrong and people didn't get what they were expecting when they walked in the theater. I think, for example, I think Hereditary had a big disparity between critic score and audience score. And that Darren Aronofsky movie, Mother, also Mm -hmm. had a big disparity. Um, Big. (laughs) Yeah, so that's interesting. I always am more surprised, I think, when I see that the audience and critic score like align almost perfectly. I'm actually (laughs) more surprised by that usually because I do think that there has been this trend of if one's high, the other's low, right? Or vice versa. Or sometimes I think it's a reaction to... I don't think that's always the case. I don't think that's always the case, but I feel like talking about Star Wars, it's been that it's Star Wars. Mm -hmm. At least the last two movies. Because, you know, we're looking at Rise of Skywalker, like I look at that in that score, the audience is like up while critics is down versus last Jedi. was like the complete opposite. Right. And I don't think that's a coincidence. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I'm not trying to make a blanket statement. I think that's always what, what's happening, but do you guys have anything else? Yeah, I got, I got two things. All right. The force awakens was a 93 critics, 86 audience. So pretty close. Right? right. The other is I want to circle around to what Derek said. Well, the thing is, I feel like that narrative has changed over the years, though. Has it? I think so. I feel like more people are not as high on The Force Awakens now. I mean, if you look at, isn't like The Phantom Menace also pretty high? So it used to be. Or has it changed over time? It's, the Phantom Menace has changed over time because people people have reviewed, I think there was like a 2012 digital release or something like that, and people reviewed it. So the percentages changed. I'm not sure they changed a ton, but they were definitely better before. Phantom Menace is a 53% now. I think it was in the 60s before, maybe higher. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those things definitely have changed over. I think the conventional wisdom at first was that the Phantom Menace wasn't as bad as now people think it is. Yeah, because I remember back then the, the, the narrative was that I think people were just so happy with more Star Wars movies, like episodes one, two, three. And I think at first people were very high on those, but you know, over time people show the true colors and, and, you know, didn't like those movies. But then I've also now started to see the reverse happen again, where people are now defending those movies again. Have you guys seen that? Oh yeah. I've definitely seen some uh, prequel defenders. Yeah. Some of my favorite critics are prequel defenders. Actually. I still can't drink that Kool-Aid. I cannot. Yep. (laughs) Not going to defend those. I mean, there is something to be said for a work of art, which is sort of the vision of one artist and is, there's expression of like his desire to make a piece of art rather than like a movie being an assignment from a corporation because you bought the rights to a particular IP. Right. That brings me around to the last thing I kind of want to address your point, Derek, you said you like to follow individual critics. So who do you follow? Who do you follow in general? Who do you follow for Watchmen? Who would you recommend readers check out the listeners check out? Oh man, that is really hard. Cause 
I am terrible with names all the time. <laughs> well, what site do you usually read? When it came to like Game of Thrones, I love Jan- Joanna Robinson mm. um, with Variety. I generally like some of the slash film writers. Okay. I like Matt Bellamy and his uh, his takes. I like, I can't remember the guy from The Ringer that I like to read. I'm terrible <laughs> with names. Uh, <laughs> um, you read Vox? You put me... I know you read Vox. I do read Vox. Yeah, I read primarily AV Club. And okay. the TV critic for Vox used to cover TV for AV Club, Emily Vanderwerf. So she, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, she's over at Vox now. And I know, Amir, you read uh, Shanti Collins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sean's one of my favorites. He's, you know, yeah. I think he started out a game of, in Game of Thrones criticism, and, and I started following him from that. He's one of the takes where I don't always agree with him, but I always enjoy his writing. Yeah, he's a great writer. He's always got a great take. He's a prequel defender. Uh, we talked about earlier about prequel defenders. He's a prequel defender, but he's always got a great take. Uh, love his work. Another person or group of people I'd recommend podcast uh it's called struggle session it's like a left-wing politics and like kind of culture analysis i mean the two guys are doing it right now are uh a guy called leslie lee the third and another guy jack allison and leslie actually did a piece in a website called truth dig about watchmen it's called whitewashing watchmen and it's a piece about the racial themes of watchmen and how the show doesn't really live up to what alan um, might have said in the comics and doesn't really live up to the kind of themes that initially set out. And Leslie's a black guy. He has a, what I think is a really good take on the racial themes of Watchmen. So I'd recommend people check out his podcast and check out his article in Truth Dig. For, um, for a different point of view, right? Yeah, yeah. For they don't really enjoy the show. So listen, like this brings us to like what I think is a big issue where people think they are the thing that they like. They become the thing that they like. And then when someone attacks the thing that they like, they see it as an attack on them. Yes. Oh, yes. I think this is a really dangerous mentality to have. I think this is something that all three of us kind of avoid. Like, I like to see different takes that I don't necessarily agree with, but I never take that personally, right? I like to see that, especially if they're well thought out and like a deep analysis of like a point of view that I've never seen before. I don't associate myself as say like a Watchmen super fan. Like if you if you hate Watchmen, then I fucking hate you too, right? Like, but a lot of people do think that way, which I think is really troubling. And I think there's more and more of that. I listen to a lot of different podcasts that do different takes on movie reviews. I'm the type of person like listen to a bunch of different podcasts because I like all of those people's opinions, right? And they're all different in, in their own ways. And we, we joked about Armin White earlier, right? right. <laughs> He's different. He has a diff- definitely a different opinion than I think a, a lot of critics out there. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. I would say I rarely kind of agree with what he has to say. But at the same time, it's a different take that I can still respect and acknowledge, but not necessarily have to agree with. I don't really know if I can respect Armin White. Okay. <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> wow, wow. Okay. I think he falls on the wrong side of being contrarian for contrarians. Yes, yes, me, I do feel that. Let me I give you a rebuttal of someone else that I almost never agree with, but I like his writing and I like his analysis. Richard Brody 
for the New Yorker, the chief film critic for the New Yorker. I mm -hmm. rarely agree with what he says, but I do enjoy reading what he writes about movies. So, And I think there is a benefit to reading something from someone that you don't agree with. They will definitely see it probably a different way than you will. Yeah. But yeah, I'll definitely check out What's it called? The struggle session, Amir? Is that what yeah, you said? yeah, yeah. Check out the article on Truth Dig by yeah. Leslie Lee the Third. He's got a good, yeah, yeah, got a good take on the racial issues of uh, of the show. So yeah. yeah, I think it's definitely worth a read. Unless you guys have anything else, I think that will conclude this week's episode. Yeah, the last episode of yeah. the year. I think we will be off until the new year, and then mm -hmm. we will make a short announcement as to what we're going to do with the podcast moving forward. Whether we're Talking about another show, movies, pop culture. So we clearly like movies, too. Yeah, we like movies. <laughs> so we'll see uh, where this road takes us. And just stay tuned for our announcement. Yes. Uh, so, Amir, where can people find you? Um, That's a real good question. Nowhere. I don't really have He's anything to plug nowhere. or promote. Okay. So, yeah. He's yeah, nowhere. The He's <laughs> yeah. not on social media. <laughs> <laughs> Find him on Fortnite. No, I'm just kidding. I don't even know who play Fortnite. <laughs> I do not play Fortnite, but oh, okay. find, me, find me on there trying to catch up on the uh, Star Wars lore. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jeff, where can people follow you then? You can find me on strangeharbors.com where I write about movies, TV, pop culture. Um, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at strangeharbors. What about you, Derek? You can find me on uh, Instagram at Twitter at the wrong dig. Dig spelled D-A-Y-I-K. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all the major platforms. And I just want to say I'm, I'm very grateful to all the people out there that have given us positive reviews on uh, podcasts and subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform that you uh, normally listen to podcasts. And I, I would say, you know, for those that haven't, please, please go ahead and do that because, you know, we're trying to pivot this podcast to maybe something new and Hopefully you stay with us and whatever we pivot to, we hope that, you know, uh, we'll find audience members for that. So definitely, like we said, you know, go on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, subscribe wherever you guys can. If you guys have any questions or opinions on anything we've said today or where maybe you want to see our podcast go, you can email us at whowatchesthepodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we'll see you guys hopefully very soon. And I guess have a happy new year. Yeah, happy holidays. We'll see you next year. <laughs>